1390 AM, The Fan. Happy Friday, everybody. AJ Salveson here on the Full Court Press. Flying solo, Eric, gone, not dead, alive, but not forgotten. He'll be back on Monday. So it's just me, myself, you, and I today. Uh, a lot to get to. Uh, as you heard at the top of the hour, Fox Sports Update, Aaron Rodgers uh, spoke for the first time publicly about the Jordan Love draft pick. Um, I guess bottom line is read between the lines. You could tell there's a little bit of irritation, uh, a little bit of frustration. Uh, but he he said he'll take care of his quarterback. Uh, and that, but that's what he's supposed to do, right? I mean, that's the starting quarterback, future Hall of Famer in many many eyes. Uh, but uh, with that comes the responsibility of. You know, Jordan Love is the future of the Green Bay Packers. Well, at least the Green Bay Packers, and we as Aggie Nation hope he is the future of Green Bay. And so uh, it is your job, Aaron Rodgers, to be that guy to mentor Jordan uh, to make sure that he is uh, he's going to be taken care of and that he'll be ready to go when his time comes up to be the starting quarterback. Uh, the Last Dance airs episodes 9 and 10. Those were the final two episodes of the uh, Chicago Bulls 1998 saga. It will air Sunday night starting at 7 p.m. on Mountain Time on ESPN and ABC. We're going to get into the Utah Jazz Chicago Bulls 1998 Finals. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, had Tony Parks on yesterday to talk about uh, his uh, his thoughts on this 98 Jazz team. And so I was doing some research between 97 and 98. And uh, it's interesting. There's not... There's more similarities than there are differences, and uh, we'll, we'll go into similar, excuse me, similarities and differences uh, in the hour. Uh, again, I'm Audrey Salison. Hope you're having a wonderful Friday and getting ready for the weekend here on 106 on FM, 1390 AM, The Fan, and 1069thefan.com. Uh, if you're streaming, we appreciate you for joining us, however and wherever you are doing so. Uh, and uh, if you want to participate in the show, you can more than happy, or excuse me, you are more than happy to do so. Uh, at 435-339-0321 to text in. 435-339-0321 to text in. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this Jazz team. Where were you when Jordan hit the shot uh, that sunk Jazz Nation uh, into extreme heartbreak for years and probably still does affect us to an extent today? Uh, where were you when you were watching this Jazz series do you feel like the refs favored the Jazz? That the Jazz... Um, it's it's interesting. I was, reading a, I was reading an article on ESPN.com and one player, I think it was... I can't remember who it was, uh, but uh, he said that the Jazz got a lot of calls. In fact, the Jazz led the league in free throw uh, percentage. But yet, the Jazz feel like, or to me, Antoine Carter, who's in this article, he's quoted saying, you know, they every time you bring down Michael Jordan was a foul. They gave the Bulls all these calls that changed the complexion of the series. Uh, and he's talking about the 90, 1999, wow, 1997 NBA Finals. Uh, but he feels like the Jazz uh, were... We're given the short straw from referees. Um, and then, of course, on the other side, the Bulls feel like the Jazz were dirty players. 
that the Jazz, I mean, again, the Jazz led the league in free throw percentage, free throws attempted, and free throws allowed. So uh, it's just kind of give and take there, a little bit of yin and yang. Uh, but uh, we'll get into all that in a little bit later. But I'd love to hear your thoughts of where you were when the Jazz were in the middle of this series uh, in this uh, this heated, I guess I'll call it a rivalry, if you will, uh, with the Chicago Bulls, both 97 and 98. Physical, physical toll on every single player who was in that series. It was just it was a bloodbath. Uh, so we'll get into all that here later in the hour. Uh, first, let's start off with Aaron Rodgers. Now, of course... Um, we've talked about it at nauseam before that the Green Bay Packers in 2005 drafted a skill-like player in the first round. Since 2005, and we're at 2020, so do the math, that's 15 years, 15 years of first-round draft picks, and they have not drafted a skill player since. Now, they actually count Jordan Love as a skill player. Not just because he's a quarterback, but because of his ability to run, uh, move out of the pocket. Uh, they they count to him as a skill player, so that would actually end that. But the problem is, is that it's a quarterback, not a running back, not a tight end, not a receiver. And Jordan Love obviously was a little bit surprised. Here's Aaron Rodgers. Or sorry, not Jordan Love was surprised. Excuse me, Aaron Rodgers was a little bit surprised. You know, the general reaction at first was was surprise. I think, like many people, um, you know, obviously, I'm not going to say that I was you know, thrilled by by the pick necessarily. But I, I understand the organization is, is thinking not only about the, the present, but about the future. And I respect that. You know, I understand uh, uh, understand that their focus and their mindset. And obviously they thought that uh, he was such a great talent that uh, they needed to go up and get him. And, and that's the other thing is not only did they go up and get him, but they, <laughs> they traded picks to get up to get Jordan Love. They traded picks to get into the first round to snag Jordan Love. That's what I think bothers Aaron Rodgers the most. Not that they picked a quarterback. Look, I mean, he was there in 2005 or four when uh, when Brett Favre was starting to age a little bit. They needed a backup, so they got Brett Favre. And Brett Favre was... Aaron Rodgers has been quoted saying Brett Favre was uh, a good mentor to him. Not a great mentor, but a good mentor. But that when push came to shove, that he and Aaron Rodgers said it, that Favre wouldn't flinch. That Favre made things difficult for the Packers. Not for Aaron Rodgers, but for the Packers. But then it also made, but then it ended up piling on Aaron Rodgers as well. Uh, so here is Aaron Rodgers discussing his relationship with the backup quarterbacks. It's the same that I've done with, with all my backup quarterbacks. And I, I feel great about those relationships that I've developed over the years, you know, many of them are, are still really close friends. You know, I consider Matt Flynn uh, a very close friend. I still have great contact with, uh, you know, a lot of guys I've played with over the years from, you know, from more recent to Deshaun and Manny to Tim and I are really close. Uh, Brett Hundley and I keep in touch all the time. Scotty Tolzien and I, you know, talk from time to time. So I've had great relationships over the years with those guys and, and expect to have the same type of relationship with Jordan. And he continues on that. He didn't get asked to, to be drafted by the Packers. There's, there's nothing, you know, he's not to blame at all. You know, he's just coming in excited about his opportunity. We had a great conversation the day after the draft, and, and I'm excited to work with him. You know, he seems like a, a really good kid with his good head on his shoulders and a similar story, not heavily recruited out of college and kind of made his way at Utah State and uh, 
we've had some good conversations. So he he brings up a really valid point. Jordan Love didn't ask for this drama. He didn't ask to get torched by all the cheeseheads in Wisconsin to be drafted by the Green Bay Packers. Was he elated? Yes. Excited? Yes. Eager? Yes. But he didn't go in there saying, please draft me so I can make things hard on the Green Bay Packer Nation and on Aaron Rodgers. And as I've read comments and tweets from the, you know, from Packer tweets about Jordan Love, you see some fans pointing that out like, quit getting after Jordan Love. He didn't do anything wrong. Get after somebody else. Get after the management, the head coaching staff, whoever, but stop piling on Jordan Love. And then in response to those, those angry Packers fans would say, well, we're not getting on Jordan Love. We're just voicing our displeasure with drafting Jordan Love. Well, that's the same thing. It's the same problem. If you're getting on the Packers or you're getting on the the fact that they drafted Jordan Love with the first round pick, you're getting on Jordan Love. And as Aaron Rodgers said, they didn't really deserve that. So with all this going on, it also begs the question to ask of Aaron Rodgers, will he finish or does he think he'll finish his career as a Green Bay Packer quarterback? You know, if, if I were to retire on the organization's timetable, then it's an easy decision. But uh, if there comes a time where I still feel like I can play at a high level and, and uh, my body. Sorry. Once again, the scene cut off on me. Let's try that again. Here we go. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, again, uh, just how it changes his future. You know, if, if I were to retire on the organization's timetable, then it's an easy decision. But uh, if there comes a time where I still feel like I can play at a high level and and uh, my body feels great, um, you know, then there's, you know, other guys have, have, have gone on and played elsewhere. You know, it, it was more the surprise uh, of the pick based on um, my own feelings of wanting to play into my 40s. And then, really, the realization that it does it does change the controllables a little bit because, um, as much as you know, I feel confident in my abilities and 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 what I can accomplish and what we can accomplish. Um, there are some new factors that are out of my control, and so my, you know, sincere desire to start and finish with the same organization. Um, just as it has with many other players uh, over the years, uh, you know, may not be a reality at this point. And, and uh, as much as I understand the organization's uh, future outlook and wanting to make sure they're thinking about the team now and down the line, um, and I respect that, uh, you know, at the same time, I still believe in myself and, and, and I have a strong desire to play into my 40s. And uh, I'm just not sure how that all works together at this point. A lot of players, as he mentions, have finished their careers elsewhere. As a diehard Patriots fan that I am, many of us Patriots fans didn't think that Tom Brady would finish his career elsewhere, ever. Not once. We all said Tom Brady's going to retire as a Patriot. 2020, Tom Brady is now in Tampa Bay, getting ready to quarterback the Buccaneers. And the same thing with Gronkowski. Thought it would end somewhere else. Cheese fans thought the same thing about Tony Gonzalez. That he would end up finishing his career as a Kansas City Chief. Very few teams 
get the chance, or excuse me, very few elite players finish their career with the team that they started with. Now, actually, I still consider Steve Young a San Francisco 49er. The whole Buccaneers thing was just a, it was like a minor league, one step below pro. Just to get his feet in the water. That he started his career as a San Francisco 49er. He ended his career as a San Francisco 49er. Troy Aikman, same thing. Started his career as a Dallas Cowboy. Ended it as a Dallas Cowboy. But in this day and age, things can change so quickly. Now, it's not like the NBA where you got players just, I mean, frolicking everywhere from, I mean, you got from Golden State to Brooklyn or from Cleveland to Miami to L.A. Uh, or <laughs> um, or Utah to L.A. in Carmelo's situation. I mean, you as Jazz fans all knew that Carmelo would stay or felt like he would always be a Jazz guy. He retired a Jazz guy. And then he went chasing rings, and we all know the rest of the story there. But Aaron Rodgers is now learning that very cruel lesson that when the the organization says your time is running out, your your clock is running low, it's time to move on. Peyton Manning is a great example of this. Like, look, he went to Denver and went to two Super Bowls. But let me be clear in saying this, Peyton Manning had nothing to do with it. He had absolutely zero doing in getting the team, the Broncos, to the Super Bowl once in losing it, and then once in getting there and winning it. That was all Denver's defense. That defense was incredible. At some point, Father Time just is sick and knocking on the door, rips the hinges off and says, get over here, you're coming with me, we're done. Your stay in this league is done. When will that time come for Tom Brady? When will that time come for Aaron Rodgers? And for Aaron, as I said before, he's starting to learn that very cruel lesson that even when you're not ready to go, the organization is saying, we're ready to move on. And you yourself have got to do what's best for you and your family and make a decision. Is it worth staying and sticking this out and having an ugly ending? Or do I go somewhere else while I still have the chance and go start somewhere. Because here's the thing. Aaron Rodgers is going to be a starting quarterback. Wherever he goes after this year, if he decides to go after this year, he'll be a starting quarterback. It's just where. And will he, And what will it do to his career? Is he going to go to an organization that's going to just, that doesn't have a good line, good receivers, good running back, bad offense, bad coaching, and it's just going to end in a horrible nightmare nightmare like it did for Brett Favre. So it's really up to Jordan how he handles this situation. That's why it's so big. Because not only is he mentoring a kid who's going to be up and coming in the NFL, but he's going to be mentoring a kid of how to make decisions and how to grow up in the NFL. Many athletes before, NFL athletes, and actually, you no, know, let's just put professional athletes in this aspect, have said that the transition into the pro league is the most difficult. 
because there's so many things coming at you, right? Endorsements, uh, people, family members and cousins that you didn't even know you had asking for money. Uh, you have all this money in your account. How do you handle it? There's so many adversity, I guess, it's just obstacles is what we should call them. And if you don't have the right mentor to get you through it, you're going to handle it wrong and your career is going to be very short. Hence, Vince Young, uh, Matt Weiner, honestly, is another one of those guys. Ricky Williams is another one of those guys, uh, at least in the NFL. So Aaron Rodgers not only has to mentor a kid on the field, but he has to mentor him off the field. And the best way to do so is by handling the situation the right way. As frustrated and upset as he might be about having to play in this offense that didn't get the talent that he was hoping for, even though it was available on the draft board, you still have to be that leader for someone who is is just being born into the league. And that's a very tough experience. Uh, for I, I just it's a very tough way to learn to uh, to grow up uh, you know without the I don't, I don't want to call it a father figure, just a mentor figure, if you will, uh, without the right mentorship. Uh, in regards of the COVID-19 and if it's going to be safe to come back and play, here's Aaron Rodgers on that. Just based on the, the age in which, you know, I... Sorry, that's the wrong one. Uh, here it is. Like many of us, and I've seen a lot of comments on this, you know, and, and obviously my story coming back from Peru... Um, before the country kind of went into a lockdown, I think we all, uh, you know, we're buying into the idea of quarantine to, to flatten the curve. Um, I think there are a lot of questions now that it's more of a house arrest, uh, to find a cure with people wondering what exactly that means as far as the future of the country and the freedoms that we're allowed to, to have at this point. I think, Sports has always been something that's brought people together. And as you see with, you know, networks like ESPN, you know, people are starving for anything, whether it's the Michael Jordan documentary or it's watching the Korean Baseball League on TV or the UFC coming back uh, with no fans. I think people are, are definitely looking for something to kind of bring us together. I'm very hopeful that we can, we can have a season. Um, I think the important thing to, to think about, though, which is more important than that, is the state of the country and the fact that we have 36-plus million people on unemployment right now. You have uh, rising, uh, obviously, poverty levels um, to go along with the unemployment. You have, uh, you know, uh, suicide hotline is up 8,000%. I think there's a lot of problems going on in the country right now associated with the fear around this pandemic. And, I, you know, I hope that... Uh, that we can use some common sense moving forward um, and make decisions that are going to be in the best interest of, of all people moving forward. And I hope that uh, that sports is a part of that at some point. It's interesting. With that Lincoln Riley, Oklahoma's uh, Oklahoma Sooners head football coach, came out and said that if players are allowed to come back June 1st, it's ridiculous. And he means that by saying, why? Why are we coming back so soon? Coronavirus is bigger than us, bigger than the football team, bigger than the NCAA football as a whole. Why are we coming? Why would we want to come back this soon? I think that's what Aaron Rodgers is also echoing. You know, there's more bigger problems right now than 
us not getting them back on the football field. But hopefully when we do get back on the football field, we're, we're able to provide some kind of help, um, some kind of normalcy to people's lives. Uh, going back quickly, really quickly, the quote that I just played before that was beginning before I interrupted it uh, was Aaron Rodgers and, and the situation, how similar it is to when in 2004 he was drafted just behind Aaron, uh, excuse me, not Aaron, Brett Favre. Just based on the, the age in which you know I was and Brett was when I was drafted and, and comparatively to me and Jordan, there are similarities to that. I think there's uh, a lot of things that aren't similar, though, when you look at uh, the two situations as far as Brett's mindset uh, during, you know, the 03 and 04 seasons. Um, and, you know, obviously my statements about a, a strong desire, real desire to play into my 40s and, and the way I feel about the game and my body and, and my love of the sport. Um, but I, I, do see, uh, I do see some similarities, and I understand that the – why they're drawn uh, in in that effect. I think you know I learned a lot over the over those years of working with Brett, uh, things that I can bring to the relationship with Jordan and just understand the mindset. You know I I was I went through it as a young 21, 22, 23 year old uh, playing with my idol uh, as a teammate, and I'll definitely definitely take those lessons with me. So again, taking the things that he learned while being underneath Brett Favre's wing and using those as a mentor for Jordan Love. And that's hopefully going to be the case here. In my mind, in my opinion, I think he will be the bigger man. That he'll say, you know what, this is the situation. They're calling for me to do something uh, to help them prepare for the future of the franchise because, as he said, I may not be here forever. He He can play into his 40s, but can he play into his 50s? No, obviously not. And by then, is Jordan Love ready to take the reins? And I think that's, uh, I, I really see that's how Aaron's thinking might be. He's upset with the first round pick being used the way it was. But he also understands this is the NFL. It's a business. That's how it's always going to be, is a business. Uh, but uh, again, uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, he'll be your starting quarterback if he can stay healthy. Uh, could take this Packers team. Look, they're one game away from the Super Bowl. One game away from the Super Bowl. Got trounced by San Francisco in the NFC Championship. But that 49ers team was a train. It was a runaway train that you weren't going to stop. The only train or the only people who could stop that train was the San Francisco 49ers. And up 10 in the Super Bowl, guess what? They hit the brakes. They stopped themselves. And Kansas City ran away with it and ended up being the Super Bowl champions. So there's that. It, but being only one game away from the Super Bowl doesn't call for whole panic mode. It calls for leadership and just to rebound and turn around and reset yourself and go at it again. And I think Green Bay, as talented as the NFC has gotten during the offseason, I still think Green I absolutely think Green Bay is a contender for to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. I don't know if winning it, I'm gonna go as far as that, but to represent the NFC. Uh, in the Super Bowl. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, get on to some more sports news, and including, of course, the last dance. Episodes 9 and 10 will air on Sunday night. We'll get into the 1998 finals and uh, just how tough it was and how tough it is for Jazz fans as well. It's RJ Salveson here on the Full Court Press, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM, The Fan. The Full Court Press. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and online at 1069thefan.com.
Full Court Press, 106 on FM, 1390 AM, The Fan, 106nthefan.com for those streaming. Appreciate you for joining us, however, wherever you are. 427 your time here on a Friday, May 15th, halfway through the month of May already. Uh, as, as slow as January, February, March drug, we're, uh, we're getting through some pretty quick months here now. April picked up a little bit of speed, as did May, so uh, good to be moving through this year. And uh, again, hope you're all staying well and safe uh, during this very unique time of COVID-19. As I mentioned before in the first segment, Lincoln Rally came out and talked about how ridiculous it would be that schools are trying to get players back uh, by June 1st to start training for the fall season. SEC Network's analyst uh, had, uh, or excuse me, SEC Network uh, did a little spot on the situation as well. And Cole Kublik, who's one of the analysts for the SEC Network, talked about how ambitious it would be to try and have a season, or at least try to get a start by June 1st. I do think June 1st might be a little ambitious. I do know that's the plan. That's the expectation. But everybody's got a plan right now with the expectation to push it back or move it or adjust because, let's be honest, there is no normal right now. And then, of course, with that, there's still some optimism and it's moving upward. I think when you hear things from different athletic directors, different presidents, maybe even other conference commissioners on a daily, weekly basis, there's reason for optimism. There's reason for hope. Auburn president Jay Goose comes out and says, we're planning on having football. Uh, you heard sort of a leak from a board of trustees meeting from Hunter Juracek at Arkansas. And he said, June 1st target date. Then here's our target date for practice. Start on the expected start date at the beginning of September. So I don't think with the amount of meetings that are happening that any of these presidents, ADs, or even conference commissioners are going to come out and say these things to make people feel good. There's too much on the line as far as their reputation is concerned to just throw those Hail Marys. There has to be some data. There has to be a process in place that they feel comfortable with to try and make that happen. Then again, this is Cole Kublik of the SEC Network. Uh, here's his uh, thoughts on just the return of these athletes coming back and, and, and what it means uh, for each team and for the school and the universities as well. I usually poke fun at the whole returning starter because everybody just thinks if a guy started the year before, he's an All-American, he's going to go in the first round. But I actually think returning starters would be critical. I think experience at quarterback would be critical. And most important, leadership will be critical. Who's been holding all these guys accountable through these workouts during this pandemic, why they've been at home or while they've been on their own? And then once they do come back, Who's going to hold them accountable to go do the extra things that they need to do? So teams that have been there and done it and have a lot of guys that understand it, the speed of the game, the physicality of the game, how to win a game late, those things will be critical for college football teams this fall. Again, this audio does come on the SEC Network channel, and so all the background noise you hear is from them. It's not us trying to pump in crowd noise for you while you're listening to a soundbite. Uh, interesting stuff, though. Really is. It's interesting. You know, it's and there's two volumes to it, right? You got the one side that says, Well, hey, we need to be playing, all right? Like we need college football, especially for the financial part of it. Like we have to have college football to secure ourselves financially. You're already seeing schools and programs dropping sports. Akron's done it. 
Uh, the MAC has actually had a few schools now dropping baseball, um, you know, soccer, women's tennis, so on and so forth. Uh, you see these sports starting to fall out because they don't have the income to be able to support them. So there's a financial burden if football is not played. In fact, we when we interviewed John Harwell, he talked about that if Utah State doesn't go to Washington, $1.5 million is not in the bank account of Utah State. It's $1.5 million they receive for going to Seattle and playing the Washington Huskies. They don't get that if they don't, if they don't go to Washington. And he talked about their, that the huge adversity they'd have to face if they don't get that $1.5 million. So on the other side of it, other side of it all, uh, it's it's different in concern. Like for example, the Major League Baseball, they have athletes who are terrified about you know being on the field, playing double headers in the heat, uh, and especially for older members of the staff, of the of of the uh, coaching staff, third base coach, first base coach, pitching coach, so on and so forth. Some are older members of the staff, and players are concerned about being around them. NBA, same thing. About players playing 48 minutes of basketball on the same court with other guys. And again, testing's going to have to come into it. But do you have enough tests to take care of your players, but also the uh, essential workers of the area, doctors, nurses, and so on and so forth? So there's all this concern on, on this side of, well, is it safe for us to even be out there? And then when you got guys, we talked about it yesterday with Steve Klauke, a uh, longtime sportscaster here in the state of Utah, he said, uh, interestingly, that you know, with Mike Trout, who is one of the most, uh, I guess he's like the face of the league, if you will, always one of the big faces of the league. Uh, him and his wife are, expect- are expecting their first child, and does he want to risk being out there and and not being able to see his child just to go play baseball? And so there's there is that huge issue as uh, as well. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Brian Kelly, head coach of Notre Dame. Uh, the situation of if conferences only play their conference games and no non-conference games are played, what is the solution? What is the situation here as Coach Brian Kelly? If each conference is deciding to play within uh, their own league, you know, that we're, we're playing a round-robin schedule with the service academies at, at BYU. Um, yeah. And so that's not going to work. <laughs> So we, we've obviously entered into discussions with our partner, the ACC, and, and certainly those schools that um, would uh, entertain playing us. Again, the, the, the service academy, Navy, is, is certainly one of them. Um, you know, we have some uh, other games that, that clearly are, you know, games where we have guarantees out that, that they have an interest in playing. And so... I think at the end of the day, I can tell you that with great confidence that we're going to get the games necessary to be um, whole and, and have a full season. And then, of course, here's Brian Kelly on uh, what would what would need to happen for uh, these players uh, to be back on the football field. To have the, the right distancing in the locker rooms, it's, it's probably going to require us to use you know more than one locker room. Uh, you know, in terms of, of weight training and conditioning, we're going to have to be able to space out and, and maybe even open up uh, outdoor uh, weight training opportunities, uh, moving racks outside, things of that nature that requires a lot of logistical planning um, to the details. No, no more salad bars, let's put it that way. It's, it's going to require <laughs> a lot of these detailed works 
that, you know, look, testing is, is at the cornerstone of all this. But, you know, when you're bringing in over 100 people together, how do you make this work? Because the worst thing that can happen is that we start this and, and, and we have a, a major setback. That's the only thing, in my opinion, that's going to shut down football is if it's not handled the right way. And, and you have a major outbreak because you're sloppy in your protocol and you didn't handle it the right way with the right details going into it. So that's a, that's another big part to it is, and we Eric and I have talked about it before, that if you do start and you come back and you play football, but then all of a sudden there's another positive case of the coronavirus within the staff, not just on the not just the players, you guys, okay, within the staff and within the team, water boys. Equipment managers, water girls, training staff, coaching staff, whatever. If there is a positive case, especially though if it's a player, you're right back to square one and that takes out football. No way can you continue to play football if a positive case comes out. It's it's too risky. It's way too risky. Uh, in regards of how much preparation they need, Brian Kelly? You still need at least six weeks to prepare your football team for your, for your opener. So you're right. There is a, a drop-dead date in terms of when you've got to get your football team back on campus. The question is, when is that drop-dead date, right? When is that threshold? When is the cutoff line? And Erica said mid-July. By mid-July, you should be back on the field. Does that give you the time you need? So, doing some math here, if you look at mid-July, let's say July 13th, right? July 13th, players are allowed to be back on the football field as a team to go through their fall camp. Uh, that'd be one week, two, three, four, five, six. So, the sixth week would be one week before the season opener. I guess oh, before week zero. Let's say that. The sixth week would be one week before week zero of the college football season. Then week one, of course, is right after that. That's when Utah State will host the Washington State um, Cougars here at Maverick Stadium on a Thursday night, by the way. Uh, the other question is, to, and I was talking to a friend the other day. They said, "What if we're going to drop it down a level. What about high school football? So, just take high school football here in the state of Utah or in Cache Valley. If they need six weeks, you're already two weeks behind. So they would actually have to start earlier. When I say earlier, they're probably looking at the first week of July, but it's the fourth, it's July 4th that weekend. So it's, you know, and I don't know if there's a memoratorium where you have to stay away from the athletes and all that. But if that's the case, then you're looking at probably at the end of June. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, well, second to the last week of July. Or excuse me, of June. So you're looking at the last full week of June. So June 22nd through the 27th is when high school football would need to start. If it doesn't start before then, because remember, their season starts about two weeks earlier than college football. A week to two weeks. And so if they don't get started by then, in June, how do, what do they do? How do you just cut off the, the non-region games and play region only? Start in September? 
or I guess you could start maybe like I, I don't know, end of August, but you're probably going to very last week of August, minimum at best, to start play, and then you probably have to cut off your non-region games. I'd be surprised if they play their if they play their non-region games. I'd be stunned. Not sure how you'd be able to make that fit. So high school football is actually a huge issue right now. And again, just just how do you handle that? Is uh, is another question. Uh, for again, going back to Brian Kelly and uh, Notre Dame, uh, he has been communicating with the parents of the players. We have already begun. We've we've reached out to our parent groups. We've already talked to our players about this. Will have to run through your parents as well, because we're going to have to over communicate what the procedures are. What what happens if somebody gets sick? God forbid. What are the procedures? What's the protocol in place? So we've we've got to have a working group that has put together procedures that are in place. It can't be well. Coach Kelly forgot to get the locker room clean today. That's just not going to fly. So all of these things have to be in place um, and they have to be over communicated to the parents. And that's, uh, that's the reality of what we're in right now with this uh, pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So again, college football, mid July start at the latest. And I'm not even sure if, if that's viable, I, I would hope that they're able to start a little bit sooner than that to get going. Um, and again, it's just so fluid. The, the whole situation is so fluid. I was talking to a um, another uh, friend of mine uh, a couple days ago, uh, and they were just kind of throwing in my head all these options for football and basketball of what they could do schedule-wise. And I was just kind of listening, and I was like, man, anything is possible. Like, as crazy as these options sound they're still realistic they're still possible like nothing is out nothing is off the table everything is as Kevin Garnett says anything is possible at this point about what could actually happen uh all right now let's get into some baseball news so Blake Snell Tampa Bay Rays uh pitcher talked about the issue of starting baseball in July. And he it's more of a financial concern than anything. Let's start with Blake Snell, and then there's a devil's adv- advocate to it after. I'm just saying, man, it just doesn't make sense for me to lose all of that money and then go play and then be on lockdown, not around my family, not around the people I love, and get paid way to hell less and then the risk of injury runs every time I step on the field. So it's it's just it's not worth it. It's not. I love baseball to death. It's just not worth it. If I'm going to play, I should be getting the money I signed to be getting paid. I should not be getting half of what I'm getting paid because the season's cut in half on top of a 33% cut of the half that's already there. So I'm really getting like 25%. On top of that, it's getting taxed. So imagine how much I'm actually making to play. You know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't making And on top of that, so all that money's gone. And now I play risking my life. (laughs) All right, so (laughs) ESPN's uh, Jeff Fasson, in response to Blake Snell, 
worried about the issue of not being financially or financially compensated for the games that he's playing. Uh, let's just say that Jeff is uh, standing on the other side of the cliff here. The big question is, are they willing, most literally, to put their money where their mouth is? Because if Blake Snell is threatening to sit out if he doesn't get his money and they don't get their money, is he actually going to sit out the season? Are the players actually going to miss a season? I still have a really hard time believing that in the end of the 1,200 guys in the Major League Baseball Players Association, they are willing to throw away a season over a cut of money. Uh, so there, there's one part to it. And then Jeff continues, uh, on the Blake Snell run over train. This is the ugliness manifesting itself. And it's particularly ugly because he, what he's trying to say is if you pay me my full salary, I'm okay going out there and risking my life. But if you take like a million dollars off of it, eh, maybe not so much. And, and I'm sorry, that logic just doesn't stand up. It, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So what he's simply saying is this. Blake Snell's going to be making $7 million in the 2020 season. If it gets cut down on a prorated basis, it's about $3.5 million if they play half the season. Whatever haircut they take off of that, Blake Snell's still making millions of dollars. And so it's really difficult for him to go out in public and say this and generate any sympathy from people. Uh, that's, that's pretty bold. So the question then is, can a deal get done? I still think a deal's going to get done. I still think there's too much to lose on both sides. But all this does is just muddy up the waters even more. And nobody needs that at this point, particularly, particularly the players who are trying to grab that bag. And, and when something like this happens, it makes it that much more difficult. So, again, a lot of concern from the baseball players' side that they're risking their life to play it. But, again, from Snell's side, it's, well, I wanted the full salary. And Jeff Passan really does bring up a great point. You can't go out and say, hey, if you give me my full salary, I'm willing to go risk my life. Oh, you're only going to give me, like, all but one million of it? Well, then, heck, I'm not going to go out there and risk my life for you then. Mike Trout's concern is more family-related. Look, I have a newborn coming into our family. And I don't want to go out there and risk playing baseball and not be able and, and, and risk my family's life for that. It's not worth it. But again, according to Jeff, there should be a deal that gets done. I mean, of course, I mean, because there's a lot of baseball players who just want to play baseball right now. They just want to play the game. And they're almost willing to take whatever deal they can get out of it. As long as they're getting paid some of the money. They'll take that deal. Not happily, but they'll take the deal. All right, speaking of taking a deal, we're going to take a break here on the Full Court Press. Coming back, we're going to talk about the last dance, Utah Jazz, 1998 Finals. How close was it really? And where did the and how much did the 1990, I can't do it today, the 1997 NBA Finals have a similarity with 1998? You'd be surprised. I'll come up on the Full Court Press 1069 FM, 1390 AM, and 1069thefan.com. The Aggies, Jazz, High Schools, even the Pee Wee's T-Ball team. It's the Full Court Press on Sports Talk Radio, The Fan. Andre Salas here on the lab, <laughs> on the Full Court Press. 106 on FM, 1390 AM, and 106 on the fan.com. Six minutes till we close it out and get you ready for the 
freaking weekend. Hope uh, you got something fun planned. Get outside. I know it's been a little bit rainy and cloudy. Looks all right right now. Uh, Last Dance, episodes 9 and 10 complete the 1998 Chicago Bulls saga. Uh, it's been fun to watch. You learn a lot. It's talking to Steve Klauke and Tony Parks yesterday here on our show. If you miss those interviews, by the way, you can go to 106onthefan.com or you can go to our podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify and find those. Uh, just type in the Full Court Press, Eric, say my name, and you'll, you'll, you'll find the interviews of all sorts. And, uh, again, great ones from uh, Steve and Tony Parks. Uh, so this, this documentary has taught me a couple of things. One thing it has not taught me or it has not changed my mind is before the documentary started, Michael Jordan said, you will hate me more than you did before, or you will find out how big of a bleep I was than you ever thought. No, that actually has not changed. You, you were everything that you as advertised in being that bleep. The absolute jerk of a teammate. Competitive at every single just being in your body. But that's why he was so great, right? He could take it to another level. And, and, and we talked about it, uh, we talked about it, uh, I think on Monday this past week, is is the uh, little soundbite that they had. Look, they talked about his dead dad, right? And how he was murdered. And he didn't shed it. I mean, well, he didn't show a lot of emotion over if any at all. But then when talking about himself, being the competitive teammate that he was, that's when he got emotional. That's what did it for him. That's what's amazing. Is that it took... Is that it took him talking about why he was such a jerk of a teammate as to why uh, as to why he ended up being you know as great as he was but again it just it amazed me um, it amazed me to no end uh, that he didn't get emotional until that in fact here's the clip right here when people see this, uh, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you, because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. Still giving me damn chills when I when I watch that. Hey, Greg Madsen actually sent me something really good right here. Listen to this. After listening to Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, are you surprised at anything that you've seen? Uh, in the documentary, he was a bitter man who somehow motivated himself to greatness. He was bitter. Yeah, here's the thing. There's a difference between being bitter and motivated. Scottie Pippen was bitter. 
Scottie Pippen today is bitter. Remember that, as Tony said yesterday, the whole uh, thing of where Tony Kukoc was asked to take the final shot. Scottie was upset. He sat on the bench. And then uh, Tony hits the game winner. And and when asked if he'd do it again, Scottie's like, yeah, hell yeah, I'd do it again. Absolutely. I'd sit on the bench. That's bitter. Michael was motivated. Look, remember the, what was it? Who was the Washington Bullets player who uh, who had like 37 or something like that in the game? And all he said, all he said was, nice game, Mike. And then Mike turned around and said, see you tomorrow night. Well, the next night they're in Washington, and Mike puts up 37 in the freaking first half. What the Bullets player had put up in a whole game, Michael put up in the first half. He found anything to motivate himself. Now, in parts 9 and 10, we'll feature two things. One, the Eastern Conference Finals against the Indiana Pacers, a, a tough test. Uh, some players have said it was the toughest test uh, in that whole entire season. Not the 98 Finals, but that series, seven games with the Pacers, scared some of those players to death, except for one guy, Michael Jordan. Look at the 98 Finals. 1997 to 98 Finals. Now, in the 97 Finals, there is one... Two, three, four of the six games that finished in single digits. Four of the six games finished in single digits. In 98, one, two, three, four, nope, yep, four, five games. Five of the six. The one that didn't was the 42-point blowout. Similarities in knowing that the Jazz choked away opportunities in 98 like they did in 97. Whether it was Carmelo missing free throws, whether it was bad possessions, uh, and then in 1998, just poor play. Absolute poor play at critical times. So parts 9 and 10 coming up on Friday, or excuse me, on Sunday night. I'm Audrey Salveson. That will do it for today's edition of the Full Court Press on 106 on FM. 1390 AM The Fan and 106thefan.com. I'm Dan Patrick, and this is Above the Noise. The final episode of The Last Dance will air on Sunday night, and it's created its fair share of controversy. A lot of people said it was too friendly to Michael Jordan, or that it's been too harsh on Jordan's enemies. But because of everything that's going on, you could argue this has been the most impactful sports documentary of all time. Not necessarily the best. There have been so many other ones that were better. Ken Burns' epic baseball. The great 30 for 30s on ESPN, starting with the brilliant Two Escobars. OJ, Made in America, won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Hoop Dreams from 1994 was so good, it should have been considered for Best Picture, not just Documentary. But The Last Dance has to be viewed in a bigger context. It's nostalgia for the Michael Jordan years, and it hit the perfect note for a sports-starved country. It's reignited old debates and started some new ones. It was the right story at the right time. Like many fans, even though we know how it ends, still going to be sad when it's over. I'm Dan Patrick, and this is Above the Noise.